Welcome everybody to LA Not So Confidential and 2021. I am Dr. Shiloh and I am here with Dr. Scott 2021. And what a two weeks it's been. Yeah, two weeks. Thanks you guys for being so patient with us. We had a lot of holiday stuff to catch up on. This was a tough holiday for everyone, I think. Yeah, I and think certainly so too. the <laughs> certainly the last week, like we don't even have time to get into like the. I mean, I don't. I would. I, you know what I was going to say? Shenanigans, and I was like, no, that's actually not respectful of the really magnitude of the things that have gone down in the country recently, and yeah. and when we can pull our our kind of psyches together. We will talk about the absolute forensic psychology and true crime implications of what went on in the Capitol this week. Yeah, lots of you have been uh, messaging us and asking for that and asking for a lot of different things during this time, you know, just how to talk to loved ones about what's going on. And um, we're happy to continue to guide you guys if you reach out and we'll come back around to that. You know, we're a little sick of talking about it (laughs) just a week in of, you know, what has transpired at the Capitol, but we'll get there. We'll get there for sure. I I will say, I think it's very interesting and it's not something, look, I'll be the first one to, you know, narcissistically pat myself on the back when I think I've done something super special. But I'm going to tell you, I'm really, really surprised. And I, I wish I had, I wish we had been wrong about the magnitude of Q. I oh, really I wish I had Me been too. wrong. Seeing what it has done in the context and in the the drive of unfettered social media, this is something that we've seen that, you know, we're going to be cleaning this up for years and I want everybody to stay safe, but that's for another episode. In fact, I think maybe we may do a one-off extra episode in the next four or five weeks about self-care, about yeah. self-care and about how to talk to family members and take care of yourself. Cause we're not out of this folks. We're not out of the unrest and we're not out of the pandemic. So yeah, probably time for another one of those. I think but so. I do want to share something funny though, with our listeners, a text conversation you and I were having earlier this week. <laughs> so oh no. oh no, I was telling Dr. Scott about this really cool mural in downtown LA. And I was like, why haven't we taken a picture in front of this yet? Because it says Los Angeles. And I'm trying to explain to him where it is. And I go, you know, it's, it's behind that restaurant, the Mediterranean, Mediterranean restaurant where LA not so confidential was birthed. Like that's when we always tell the story of how the podcast Tilt Coffee. started. Yeah. Right. We were over at Tilt Coffee. Well, no, we were at the restaurant. We had lunch. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, um, so I'm telling him, I'm like, you know, that Mediterranean restaurant called spread. And then I go, I could have left it alone, but I'm like, well, it wasn't birthed. It was more like conceived there. And then I couldn't stop. And I'm like, isn't it weird? You knocked me up at a restaurant called spread. (laughs) And I could just like hear over text Scott throwing up in his mouth a little bit. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Women's bodies are beautiful. They're works of art. They're absolute works of art that are a, a, a nether of labyrinthine mysteries that I think most, even most heterosexual men don't know how oh to navigate. <laughs> and it was just silence. I got radio silence from him. And then he was like, what the fuck is in your coffee? <laughs> 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 oh, that was, uh, you know what, if way. that, if that happened, I'd make you be on top and do all the work. I'd oh be like God. the laziest <laughs> lover at this point. I have no energy. I have no energy. <laughs> 
Oh man, I'm like all. This is our creative baby. We've had a creative baby, right? (laughs) We have. We have. Definitely. And oh, look, all our our listener numbers are dropping as we speak because they're so grossed out. (laughs) Oh my god, my cheeks hurt from smiling. Stop. Okay. Okay. Um, that was fun, but hey, I am ready to talk about good old fashioned serial killers. What about you? I am. And I think that this is a special one because you, there's <laughs> a such special a special episode. This is a special, very special Hallmark episode about 1980s serial killers. Um, but no, it really is special because this is so particular to Southern California. Oh my gosh. And specific yes. to a time and specific to absolutely a movement in the U.S. and spawned a movement and was part of a a movement and driven by a movement that we'll dive into just a little bit, but we mainly want to focus on the case and sort of the cultural zeitgeist at the time. And you and I don't talk about like these heavy hitter serial killers. Not so much. Very often. And I don't know. I I wanted to revisit this just for the things that you're sort of describing that, um, You know, the story of the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, is so quintessential to Los Angeles. And what I want to do today is not so much focus on him, like doing a deep dive on, you know, necessarily what makes him up or what his um, court trial was like or anything like that. Although, of course, we're going to cover what he did, but... I really want to give the audience a feel for what it was like living in Los Angeles at that time. Now, I was only seven years old. I can't speak exactly to that. I can speak to my memories about it, but I was pretty oblivious. Thank goodness. Good parents for not letting me know what was going on, Um, but also to hear through other people. Right. But I also want to, I think that's such an important point that you make. I mean, certainly there's an age difference between us. I was... In college, I think. Yeah, I was in college in another state. And I didn't know what was going on because I didn't read the newspaper at that time. I was like, that was just not sort of my life. And people forget, especially for our younger listeners, that, you know, this was so pre-social media. I mean, there were three networks and that's it. True. It's like three major networks. News is on at specific times. There's only breaking news when it is... A major natural disaster or an assassination attempt or something, you know, enormous. Not to say that these the loss of these lies are, was not horrific because it really was. But the idea of a twenty four hour news cycle did not exist at that time. Right. And had it existed, this would have been all over it. But you know, we're talking about a specific time where information was much more static. And broken up than it is today. And maybe that's a better thing. Maybe that's better that we took things there in bite-sized pieces and processed it and kind of digested it rather than just being constantly bombarded with it like we are today. Yeah. And I I think that's what makes um, the residents of Los Angeles at that time have this shared experience that other people didn't have. Um, If you are listening to this episode on release day on the 13th, you know probably that the Netflix docuseries The Night Stalker gets released today as well. So I I think they're going to do a fantastic job at really giving you the feels for what it was like. Also, I'll mention this again at the end of the episode, but this Saturday on the 16th, our Get Vocal is going to include a lot of people coming on and talking about their experiences during the summer of 1985. 
That's some great. writer, we have some writers and photographers, some family members of mine, people that are going to talk about it from being a kid, a teenager, an adult. It's going to really paint a cool picture. So please join us. Um, but I also want to focus on the victims today. And I am going to have you take us down the road of satanic panic, Scott. Just <laughs> yeah, and I here. like, and I promise I won't, I won't draw. I mean, I'm fascinated by this. It's something. It was actually my first forensic project was focusing on satanic panic as a doctoral candidate. But uh, I don't want. I like it. It needs its own thing, and it also needs. You know, if we ever do a standalone episode, what I want to do is give great respect to an incredible number of podcasts and articles that have already been done that I think are really good on it. And I would say also that I want to hear more. I don't. Th- I think that there's a lot that can be uh, pulled out of the exploration of why these basically witch hunts occur, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're happening now. The Q is a witch hunt. It is the same thing. This is the same cycle that seems to be happening ever since the Middle Ages when we burned men and women at the stake or worse. I mean, there are worse things than setting someone on fire, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah, so we'll touch on that. But mainly, I think what you're saying is giving a timeline of what went down with Ramirez, as well as talking about really the state of the art of forensic psychology at the time and uh, forensic evaluation, which was either really good or really bad. And we're going to give you kind of examples of both of those and what we, what our perspectives are on them now. Right. And we don't do a lot of trigger warnings. Usually we just say, Hey, if you're listening to us, it's kind of par for the course, but we are going to talk about when with talking about the victims, um, some torture, there's child abuse, child murder here. Uh, we're going to keep it as clinical and ungory as possible. So just want to give you guys a heads up. Yes. So I said that this was very quintessential to L.A., but Richard Ramirez was very much a quintessential serial killer with what we kind of think of when we think of a serial killer in terms of, you know, what factors made him into what he became. So we have from when he was in utero, his mother is pregnant with him and she's working in a boot factory Day after day, a lot of harsh chemicals while she's pregnant. So we right there have the beginning of possibly, you know, something's going on that could impact Richard Ramirez um, at a very, very early age. Uh, Chemical, yeah, absolutely exposure to to harsh chemicals. And let me tell you, at that time, there was a lot less, there was even less regulation than there is today with that kind of environment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine a pregnant woman working in those conditions at this time? I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think about. When he was two years old, he was crawling up a piece of furniture, a dresser, as children do, but that dresser was not bolted to the wall and it fell on him, injuring him quite seriously. He was knocked unconscious. He required about 30 stitches in his head and there's head injury, number one. And then there's another one when he's about five or six where he was hit in the head again, knocked unconscious by a swing and... It was at this point that he started suffering from seizures. So he was eventually diagnosed with epilepsy, um, which we know is associated with 
abnormal electrical activity in the brain. It's a neurological disorder. So here we're, we're seeing a physical, biological impact of these injuries happening. Um, well, like then, you're saying, clearly yeah. there's one head injury is absolutely concrete. We know about that. And then on top of it, the potential for in utero chemical exposure is mm-hmm. very, very possible as well. Right, right. So, you know, you have some physical things going on that is changing brain structure. And then we have some of the trauma and abuse exposure, you know, some of those environmental factors. Um, At age 12 to 13, he was really starting to hang out with his older cousin who was a Vietnam vet. Um, And he would they would smoke marijuana together, but he liked to share his photographic evidence from Vietnam of the torture and mutilation and rape of the Vietnamese women over there. So this is really a time where you have Richard Ramirez admitted, admitting that he's starting to pair violence and killing with being sexually aroused. So we have a pairing situation happening there. It's probably creating. What age was that? Did you say that was between 12 and 13? 12 and 13. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, a paraphilia can absolutely be developed at that time in that way. He is also at this time being physically abused by his father. Most of the siblings were. So, you know, another trauma that then actually kind of forces him to go and live with a sister, an older sister and her husband. And guess what? That husband was a peeping Tom. And he would take Richard out with him to go peep into windows in the neighborhood. So he taught him how to do that, how to sneak around, how to not be seen, how to um, even remove window screens from windows. So this is like, it's like he's being taken down this course or being taught by these men some really horrific things. And I would want to point out as well that while there's other things that come up diagnostically down the road for him, what you just gave an example of is particularly important when it comes to the developmental sequelae of a young man. Here he is, he's moved in with the sister and her husband. Now he's having this really bizarre activity of violating someone else's privacy is normalized. And not only is it normalized, it is paired with an intimate relationship with his brother-in-law. Right. So he is now thinking this is acceptable and here's someone who likes me and trusts me enough to take me out to do this. Sure. So, it's, it's an adult modeling this behavior. So it exactly. must be okay. It must be okay. And, and I want to, I want to maintain this relationship, so I'm going to engage in it. And now who knows if he had any inkling of whether what was right and wrong, if he was disordered in that way. That comes up a little bit later in evaluations. But clearly, that's a really bad experience for a kid to have, to be modeling these behaviors that are violating the rights of others. And it gets worse, right? Yeah, it it does. I mean, he, he also continues hanging out with the cousin that was the Vietnam vet. Um, And eventually when Richard's about 13 or 14, his cousin shoots and kills his wife in front of Richard. So he sees 
I'm just thinking about the role that the women are playing in his life. You know, he has his sister who he's um, sneaking out with her husband. And then now he sees another woman married to a family member that is murdered by a male family member right in front of him. And his cousin actually doesn't get convicted. He gets sent to a mental institution. He's found not guilty by reason of insanity. Or I'm sorry, he actually wasn't even competent to stand trial. So he goes away to an institution for a number of years. And Richard ends up um, sort of graduating to hallucinogens and cocaine and um, I think eventually some heroin use in there. So we have a lot of, of things going on, especially with the drug use at this age as well, developmental, neurological developmental age. These are all just, if you could think up a perfect storm to create somebody that is capable of doing these things, here it is. Absolutely. It's it's a really unfortunate, bizarre, and toxic mix of things, especially what you're saying about the hallucinogens, because even, you know, we're looking back in time to 1980-ish, early 1980s. No, before that, really, right. because he's a child in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So LSD was really rampant in the scene there. And it was being, you know, produced in people's bathtubs. And, you know, once again, there was like unmonitor production of this stuff. So who knows what this kid was even getting True. in his system. So, True. I mean, and then if there were other things, I would not be surprised if there was inhalant use. And it's interesting because in looking up this particular case and looking up his background, it's never mentioned. And I did never even see if he was asked if he had used inhalants. I didn't see that either, but they were pretty big at that time as well, especially for right. teens. And yeah, because it's easy people. to get. Exactly, exactly. And I, I will say this, like of all those, even, you know, cocaine, all the other ones, like, you know, if you give it time, even with meth, you can give it time. Your brain does have the potential to recover. When you're a heavy huffer or inhalant user, there is no coming back. There's no coming back. It's very sad. I've seen very young people just destroyed because of it, like physically, developmentally destroyed. So do you want to talk a little bit about diagnosis, possible diagnoses for him at the time? Because he was never officially assessed, correct? That we could find. That that we can find. There are some some different things. I think that he was interviewed and there was there were a lot of people talking back and forth, which of course to us, you know, for the way that you and I work and being so specific when we do evaluations and doing rule out diagnoses, looking back on this case, it's incredibly frustrating. So there were a lot of things that were tossed around. I actually found something very interesting that was a very tight essay written out. Uh, this is only just a couple of years ago. This was 20. 18, and it's a student essay out of the UK. Um, and I'm sure it was an assignment, but it's posted online and it's only a thousand words. I think it's a love. I mean, if I was a lecturer or if I was a professor, you know, teaching a class like this, this would be my requirement. You have to do it in a thousand words. Oh, that'd be great. Because that's going to force the student to really get to the heart of the matter. And what this student does is he goes through all of the material that's available from all the interviews and the available evaluation materials and comes up with two 
major things that I really agree with. And that was basically conduct disorder. Conduct disorder is more than just what we call oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder is when a child really learns the power of no. And and a child can be an angel at school and a little terror at home, or they can be an angel at home and a terror at school. And it's usually kids grow out of it with appropriate parenting and appropriate uh, parameters put in place because it's just they're experimenting with individuation from the family and learning to be themselves. However, when it comes to conduct disorder, conduct disorder is a whole different ball of wax and usually incorporates at least a few of the elements that you described in Ramirez's background, because the most important thing about conduct disorder is violating the rights of others. Yes. So we don't give personality disorder diagnoses to people under 18. At least we're not supposed to. We really shouldn't do that because we do want to give credence and possibility for the plasticity of the brain and the plasticity of the identity development as an individual progresses. But, you know, every once in a while, you'll see behaviors and elements in a childhood uh, development and you go, "Mm, yeah, that's conduct disorder. Well, and that's why conduct disorder is basically a prerequisite for antisocial personality disorder diagnosis later on. Yes. Thank you for saying that. So it's, it's foundational. Like it's really, if you, whenever you see someone being diagnosed with psychopathy, it's always going to indicate that there were problems in childhood. I mean, well, 99.9% of the time, unless there's like, you know, adult traumatic brain disorder or brain, uh, brain injury. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he definitely meets many of the criteria for conduct disorder without going deep into those. And then primarily, um, he scored, uh, at least a nine out of 12 in the psychopathy, um, checklist, the PCLR. Right. And hypothetically like like this, this writer is reviewing it and saying he would probably score here. Right. And and I, once again, I say, this is a very tight essay that I think is very well written. Um, and you know what, let's, let's give a shout out to him who wrote this. We'll definitely put it up on the website and all Yeah, I'll put a resources. link to it. I think 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 this uh, individual does a really good job. One really tight paragraph about everything that you were talking about. Early childhood trauma, uh, criminal psychopathy, um, the witnessing of domestic violence, the witnessing of murder, the use of, you know, massive amounts of drugs, the head injury, all of those things really play a big role in his relevant psychological function. So There are some other things, though, that came up in the research where, you know, someone said that they had diagnosed him with schizoid personality disorder. And I I just don't get where they even came up with that at all. You know, schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders are really, really fascinating. They're very rare in their most severe forms, but we actually probably have more people with mild versions of schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders than you're aware of. This is the person that is just odd. You know, it's the loner, the not, not necessarily the dangerous loner, but just an odd person that doesn't really seem to want and or need close relationships. Or they might have one semi-close relationship that actually fulfills all of their needs. Right. Or they might... Was um, the guy who murdered Rebecca Schaefer, wasn't he diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder? 
Yeah, well, that was one of them. I mean, he has, he had a lot. I think he actually has, um, if I remember correctly, it was a cluster personality disorder as well as some pretty severe psychosis. Yeah, we covered that in our stalking episode. Yeah, he has some pretty uh, delusional thoughts going on. But, you know, for just sort of a down and dirty definition of schizoid personality disorder, we look at it, it's characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships or a tendency towards very solitary or sheltered lifestyles, emotional distance, or what can be seen as coldness, detachment, and what appears to be apathy. Individuals who are diagnosed with this may not be able to form intimate relationships to others in the way that we expect ourselves to form relationships. They may actually have much more of a rich and profound interior life that they are unable to communicate And it may have more, you know, what we would consider to be superficial relationships may be more than enough for them. So like we have said many times on this show before, incidence of people with severe mental illness engaged in criminal activities is extremely rare because people with severe illnesses generally have what we call negative symptomology or tendency to draw inwards. And it's one of the things that unfortunately contributes to to great stigma in the mental health world is just saying, oh, that person is crazy. They're going to be the one to shoot up the school or, and it just doesn't work that way. So negative meaning being void, like you're saying of the sort of expression and relationships that we expect from someone who's neurotypical, like, they turn inward. There's the lack of, that's why we say negative, like the lack of the ex, maybe a physical expression or verbalizing or connectivity with others. Right. So it's not like Debbie Downer negative. It's right. the person, it's, it's the lack of. So a flat or a blunted affect, mm-hmm. um, flat monotone speech, that kind of thing. So I did think that there were some very interesting quotes from some of our, the granddads of psychology that talk about schizoid. And they um, talk about one thing uh, that's interesting is that the schizoid individual is very happy with the way they are. Like they don't, they're not judging their unhappiness. They're like, oh, this is who I am. This is okay. In fact, there's something like actually kind of elegant about that. Like this is who Mm -hmm. I am. I don't have any problem with it. But they really just don't focus on relationships. So they can come across as robotic at times and odd and eccentric. And I think that somehow the wires got crossed in Ramirez's case because there's a a psychologist that was quoted in many, many interviews. Um, Lillian. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) I don't know why. Like, so, I mean, this is back from 1985, Lillian Imperi, who was 61 at the time, who, you know, was very, uh, very forward about saying that she had 30 years of clinical experience somehow just started showing up to the trial. Right. Like, so she's and clear talking you, to the press. Yeah. And you're not working very much if you're going to the trial every day. Cause that was a big trial. And she said, I think this guy is psychotic. He lacks contact with reality. I think he's incompetent to stand trial and I have my reasons. Now, of wow. course, I'm I'm giving my own inter- vocal interpretation as I am want to <laughs> well, do. Well, of course, we don't clearly, know what she sounds like. Clearly, she, and she said she's fascinated with them, and she was certified at the time, board of psychiatry and neurology certified. Was a member of the board of forensic psychiatry. I, I doubt if she's still around. The idea that she would say that because he was kind of blank, that he was incompetent to stand trial, like that's just not something. 
Could you imagine if you're like, hey, Shiloh, I'm going to go to this trial for a couple days, and then you in front of the LA Times or whoever's interviewing her going, you know what, um, or interviewing you, this is what my diagnosis is from the audience of a court proceeding where, and we've talked about this a number of times, defendants are told not to show any anything. Like, just you're not getting an accurate depiction of his behavior or anything in a setting like that. Well, it tells us more about her than it does That's Richard right. Ramirez. I mean, one of the quotes says, he was just real loose and real hyperactive and just gazing vacantly out into the audience, what we call a fixed gaze, obviously unaware of what was going on in the courtroom, which is, to me, a real sign of incompetency. Okay, you just completely contradicted yourself in that statement, lady. He's loose. Do you mean loose as in loose associations? Because that's a that's certainly a description, but like that's not Do you think like hyperactive 30? and vacant? Like that's Do you think 30 years a, from now someone's gonna be picking apart our transcripts and they'll be like those psychologists in the 2020s? You know, <laughs> you know what? what like if, <laughs> if, if that happens, I would be honored. If anybody is thinking one shred about me. And at that time, I there would, I'll buy, I'll leave some money in my account for them to buy a drink. <laughs> That's what we'll do. So funny. So, yeah, I mean, the, the big hitter here is clearly psychopathy and all that comes with that. I think the points on the PCLR that the student essay pointed out were absolutely on top of it. I don't think that he was schizoid at all. I think it was just absolutely the worst mix and of yeah. events to come on this kid. You know, if we ever talk about like having compassion for the people who commit great evil in our world, you know, this is the moment where we look and we go, well, this is why this happened. Yeah. He not um, justifying any crimes folks. You clearly no. are not, but you just have to understand that this is a, a really horrific crucible that created this man. Right. And he, sometimes he's referred to as a pure psychopath because he literally hits almost every single item on the PCLR. Um, he weighs heavier on factor two, which is the behavioral piece rather than, um, like affective, you know, he's not charming. He's not, <laughs> he's not charming, he but is he's he manipulative is. and he also, and he, but he is, cl he's clearly hitting that part of the neurological part of um, psychopathy where he needs stimulation yeah. and he'll take stimulation in any way he can get it. And he really does enjoy getting a rise out of people, which leads into the oh, next part. God which is the satanic thing. Like I, you know, I think it was for him, it was just show. Yeah, I think so too. And we'll, we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Basically his crime spanned between June of 84 and August of 85. So he was 24 years old when he was offending. And it turned out that he obviously was connected to way more crimes and homicides than initially thought but he was convicted of 13 murders, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, 14 burglaries. He was found guilty on all of those counts. And he was a very diverse offender, which actually is one of the uh, items on the PCLR is sort of this criminal versatility. So he had only been busted 
for very low-level crimes before this, like some little like drug sales and possession of marijuana and petty theft and things like that. Hence the reason back then they didn't take everybody's fingerprints when you were arrested. It was only felons. So they didn't match fingerprints. I did not know that. Early on, yeah. That's fascinating. It's across the board now, obviously. But um, it was only um, mandated for felonies back then. So... His crimes are so interesting because, and and this speaks to why there was sort of just terror in all of Los Angeles and sort of Southern California at the time, is that this took place over multiple jurisdictions. So we say Los Angeles, but I kind of want to parse that out and take a little bit of time to explain that, and especially the jurisdictional issues for people, is that we have we have several counties, obviously, that make up our state, right? But you have Los Angeles County, which is huge, that within it has the city of Los Angeles, which is also pretty big. But then you have other cities within Los Angeles County. So he was primarily, and he went outside of this, but I want to say primarily offending in the East Los Angeles area and the area that we call the San Gabriel Valley, which is where I was born, where I grew up, where I live, kind of along the foothills. Think Pasadena, if you know the area at all. Um, Those are the areas that he really hovered around. And when... He he offended in many different cities, so you can tell, you know, okay, which which agency has which crime and how are they piecing this together? This is actually a a story of law enforcement working really well together. And I think partly it's, you know, we always hear these horror stories of the 70s and 80s of them not talking to each other, not putting the pieces together, sort of fighting over jurisdiction. But it worked really well in this scenario because when you have these little pockets of LA County that have smaller police departments, they're not very experienced at homicides happening in their cities. So by default, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department actually will come in and investigate homicides because their homicide team is amazing. They are badass. They're really, really good at what they do. Even from back then? Even from back then. Wow. Oh, yeah. Okay. They're great. Um, So you have kind of the two biggest agencies are LAPD and um, the LA County Sheriff's Department. And both of them, their homicide teams are elite. They've always been at the forefront. And so... You have some murders happening in the jurisdiction of the sheriff's department, but then you have them happening in these other cities, but it was nice because automatically the sheriffs get called in. So you're having the same eyes on these scenes, Um, and I love that we do that here because it's not that they have to ask for help. It just automatically happens. So even in like the little city that I worked in, whenever there was a homicide, the sheriffs came and investigated it. Whenever there was an officer-involved shooting, they came in and investigated it, so we didn't investigate our own on it. Um, We just have some really, we actually do some things right here in L.A., so, um, but he, he did also offend in, um, Orange County, like very South Orange County towards the end. And then as you'll hear, he was offending up in the Bay area. But as far as it being down here, we did a great job and, um, 
really kind of the superstar of all of this is the lead investigator, Gil Carrillo, with the Sheriff's Department. He's going to be featured in the docuseries that's coming out. I've heard him speak before. He's fantastic. He he reminds me of all of like my parents' friends from when I was a kid because my parents were with the sheriff's department. Um, but he was just great, very tenacious. Um, aside from those crimes, I think it goes unspoken sometimes that Richard Ramirez greatly offended against children as well. He was also a child murderer that we found out later. But there were five abductions, child abductions that he was responsible for in Los Mm. Angeles during the times that he was also committing these murders. Um, One little girl he kidnapped, I believe, from Arcadia, and he, he let them live. He would sexually assault them, but she said that he took her to this hotel in downtown L.A., which was probably the Cecil Hotel, where we know that he stayed. And... To think of this this little six-year-old who I heard was an amazing, smart, brilliant witness for the sheriff's department um, going through that is just heartbreaking. Yeah. But I think we need to remember he didn't just kill adults. He was offending against children. Which really does speak to his psychopathy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so... Los Angeles, 1985, which is when the majority of his crimes occurred very close together, when he was really, really getting out of control and before he was caught in August. It's so funny because it's always reported as being like the hottest summer in L.A. And, you know, it's kind of the lore of the story is that people were sleeping with their windows open and that's why he was getting in. And then when it started catching on that there was a serial killer. People were locking their windows and they were sweating to death because it was so hot. But it's funny. I went back and looked through all these months what the temperatures were because I'm like, what is this 1985 like record setting year? And it was like eh, between May and August, 70s to high 80s. Oh, that's <laughs> like, nothing. nothing. <laughs> that's nothing compared to what we have now at Does that all. speak to global warming or what? Just doing our own little experiment well, here? <laughs> I, let me let me also put it this way, though. Um, I don't think that air conditioning was quite as ubiquitous as it is today. Exactly. And, uh, and I know this is just going to sound completely out of left field. Um, the enormous building boom that happened in Southern California in the late 50s all the way through the 70s was really crappy construction. Oh, so yeah. we're talking like really badly designed homes that did not have airflow, had low ceilings. I mean, like there's classic LA architecture, which is beautiful. And then there's a lot of crap that got thrown up during um the fifties through probably yeah. even the late eighties. Yeah. Um, that if you don't have an air conditioning, like you could you know, the nights might be pleasant, but your your building is still hot from getting all the sun during the day. Yeah, you're spot on. That that definitely was the difference. It was not commonplace to have AC. And and many of the windows that he got in were like these really crappy. You can I mean you can even tell the quality of the construction by the way they're described because they're these cheap slide windows as opposed to double pane hung sure. windows that can be locked or you can lock them in position to little 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 air in but keep people out. Right, right. And that was sort of his signature. He would slip in through sliding doors. He would 
come in through windows. Um, and it was very creepy. It really, you know, the, the horrific nature of the crimes that we're going to get into left people in fear. But just this invasion, this feeling that it could happen at your home. Right. At when at the most vulnerable time, you know, typically he was breaking into people's homes between, you know, two and four in the morning. Um, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. There was no consistency to the victimology. He, uh, young, old, male, female, families, couples. Yeah, I, uh, I thought that was, you know, in the same way that you brought up the giving the example of the victims that were young, young girls is also the elderly women that he assaulted, uh, which lot. just like that, that hurts you in a completely different way, but just as profoundly as knowing that he offended against children. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was no consistency to the method of killing. People were stabbed. People were strangled. People were shot. People were bludgeoned. Um, Sometimes he would bring the weapons with him. Sometimes he would find what was ever in the home. And then you have all these scattered locations. So you know, trying to put yourself as a resident in the area at the time, it could be anywhere, anyone, at any time when you're the most vulnerable and you're thinking, how am I going to defend myself? So people's lives change. Gun sales went through the roof. People were sleeping with guns under their pillows. People were sleeping with whatever makeshift weapons they had, bats, um, you know, putting the wood in behind the sliding door so you have some extra protection there sleeping with you know dogs in your room um dog sales probably went up too uh it was just people were doing whatever they could to protect themselves it'd be fascinating to get some stats to see how many accidental gun discharges i mean they didn't really report them in the same back True. then the way they do now the minute a gun is discharged in LA now it's like they're the the police are on it and they're yeah. you know there's an investigation about it, but yeah, yeah I, um, bet. I think a lot you're of talk- inexperienced people with firearms. Right. And I think you're talking about something very specific to the time that will tie to something we talk about in a moment, but it was really a time of innocence in many ways. Um, because I, I mean, and I grew up in a neighborhood um, in Alabama where you didn't lock your doors. Like when I sure. was in high school and had, a, you know, busing tables at a restaurant and I would be coming in late, I didn't need a house key because it was open. And then there was one incidence of somebody creeping around houses in our neighborhood. I think this was probably like 78 or 79. And let me tell you, the news traveled fast and everybody's door locked. Oh, I bet. That, you know, so I think that you're talking about like a, a really a change in the culture. Sure. You know, that um, just put people on edge. And, and it, that's reflected if anybody's watching the Netflix series Ripper, which was about another serial killer in, in London, uh, in actually not in London, but in England, they talk about the same thing that, you know, now women all had to be worried about leaving a bar at night. Mm-hmm. And how that became problematic on so many levels because now men would use this as a pickup line. Oh, well, let me lock, well, let me walk you home as opposed to, well, you shouldn't be out here alone by yourself. I mean, that became a whole other issue. So I know. once again, it's about how one incident or one series of events can completely change an entire environment. 
Yeah. And, and nothing was <laughs> added the creep factor to this. Like when they finally started getting some witness descriptions of him and then that really creepy sketch of him yeah. before we knew who he was, which was just those piercing eyes. And it was staring at you from every newspaper and television broadcast all the time. If you were here. So, you know, it, it's fueling. It's 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 really spinning up, and people are really on edge. And um, it was just it was quite a time. There there's a fantastic book called The Summer of Satan. Um, it's written by Glenn Martin, who was a former LAPD PD detective. Um, it's such a wonderful depiction of Los Angeles. It's in conjunction with the LA Public Library that he wrote this book, but it's. It's a series of photographs and stories of the people at the time. And I believe there's only one photo, if one, there might be none, but I think there's one photo of Richard Ramirez in it. But the rest is just about the people of Los Angeles during that time. And it's it's a really kind of cool postcard to that, you know, those few months. Um, but it's available on Amazon. I, th- I, I went to a a talk at the LA public library when they were releasing it and heard from some of the people whose stories he tells and who are going to be in the documentary. And it's just story after story about, um, how they felt some people having run-ins with him and not realizing it until later in some of these neighborhoods. But I, I highly recommend the book. It's fantastic. We'll put a link up to it in our show notes as well. Yeah. Yeah. But this case was, you know, it was really about, a lot of forensics, forensic science, um, and the hard science behind forensics. Uh, it was about fingerprints. It was about shoe prints, you know, yes. whether they were dusting shoe prints or cutting up rugs or making plaster casts of the shoe prints. That was very important. Um, photographic ed- evidence, seminal fluid, you know, DNA evidence. This was really a, an, a, interesting cutting edge time in forensic science. And eventually the fingerprints and the shoe prints are what, you know, linked this as serial killing because it wasn't making sense other than that with the type of victimology that we're talking about and the offending behavior. And there was also an informant who named him. And that's a big part of this case that nobody ever talks about. All those things, the forensics and this informant really got the investigators to do good police work and narrow it down to the right Richard Ramirez, because we're not talking about an uncommon name here, (laughs) especially in Southern California. Right. So finally finding the right Richard Ramirez could be really difficult, but it, it was solved by a combo of all of those things. Um, But I think we shouldn't be remiss in talking about the, the forensic evidence and definitely the signature of him of the pentagrams and the references to Satan worship in this case where he was leaving his marks at crime scenes. Right. Now, before we move on to that, which I'm going to cover briefly, um, if, you know, you were talking about sort of this coming together 
in a more integrative way, all of these different forms of forensic criminal pathology and uh, forensic pathology elements. Certainly they didn't have the DNA test that we have, but they had certainly they could tell what blood type he was and things like that. But wasn't it really the, the um, plaster casts of the footprints of the shoe prints? Wasn't that the main thing that identified him or connected them. It connected them, right? It was identifying the correct shoe and shoe size based on those plaster casts. Okay. But they were able to find out that it's something like, you know, however many versions of those shoes in that size were shipped to California and only one pair actually made it to Southern California. So that was a big part of the investigation. And that's fascinating too, to think about like now, there's technology that can do it and, and, and don't fuck with cats, which is a great right. documentary. They talk about all that crowdsourced information and like, Oh, I found that this blanket is only made in Yugoslavia. And like, that's exactly. kind of amazing. But then you think about them tracking that shoe information down in 1985. That's, that's kind crazy. of amazing. I yeah. know it, it, exactly. That's, that's some major investigative work right there. Hey, Crawl Space community. Do you love true crime podcasts but could do without all the chatty banter? Are you intrigued by what's underneath our collective true crime obsession and want to hear field experts, authors, and content creators weigh in on the subject? Well, it might be time for you to kill the small talk and join the dialogue. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, host of Dialogue, a true crime conversation, which is a weekly podcast where I speak with fascinating guests from the true crime world and the criminal justice system. And yes, I have interviewed Tim and Lance, and you don't want to miss that episode. Together, we explore the genre itself and attempt to answer the why of true crime and the question, what are we even talking about when we talk about true crime? Join me every Wednesday for a new episode and a killer conversation. Dialogue is part of the Crawl Space Network and available wherever you listen. So, you know, you use the word creepy, and certainly this was an absolute chilling experience and frightening experience for so many people once again because people could not rule themselves out as potential victims right like if the sky was only going for blonde 19 year olds under 510 right you know everybody else like hey you know what right. i'm i'm fine i'm, I'm, I'm not leaving my sliding that. glass door open exactly tonight. i'm going to get a nice breeze because there are so many variations in his um his victimology, um, this, you know, certainly heightened the fear. And then on top of it was the idea that he was leaving these calling cards that indicated, you know, some occult leanings that he had. So that became a big part of the case. And really they focused a lot on it, which was quite needless because, Certainly, if if he was, if he really did consider himself to be an occultist who was a follower of Satan or a Satanist, then he was doing his own thing because there wasn't anything like that going on. Now, certainly, the Church of Satan has been around since the 50s, founded by Anton LaVey, who was born in the 30s. Um, it was a response to a lot of sort of overly restrictive moral discussions that were being had at the time. So if you drill down, and I think probably a lot of our listeners would already know a lot of this stuff anyway, but the whole religion of Satanism 
as it is understood in our modern world today, is really populated by a lot of philosophical beliefs and intellectual beliefs and mainly atheistic skeptics or agnostic skeptics. And what they're do they're talking about is their movement is representative of what they feel uh, the character of Satan represents. And that represents pride, individualism, achievement, and um, uh, what's the other thing that's a big part of it? What's the word? Hold on one second. Um, so basically it boils down to this. The, the church of Satan views Satan as a character who is an archetype or an avatar that is positive and represents enlightenment, seeking of knowledge, individualism, and pride. And it is basically pushing back against what we call the Abrahamic fates, faiths which became Christianity, um, Judaism, and Islam. So basically sort of, no, we are going to elevate the individual and the the pride in your accomplishments and what you can do. And interestingly enough, one of the, the not the catchphrase, because it's not a catchphrase, like, <laughs> hey, buy this, but sort of the underlying read uh, of the Church of Satan is, and it harm none, do what thou wilt. So basically, you do, do you, you do you. Right. <laughs> don't it's hurt anybody. <laughs> You're right. You do you. All right. Like, don't hurt anybody. Don't fuck anybody up. But you do you and leave everybody else alone. Now, I mean, that's an oversimplification, but that sure. is also pushing back against sort of the 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 new age sort of uh, Gardnerian stuff that was going on. I'm sorry, I can go down the total hole because I love occultism. I'm totally fascinated by it. <laughs> but there was also a movement there that was sort of um, the exploration of what was, you know, Celtic and traditional English magic, which was actually, it was all made up by a couple of old dudes. Um, but they came up with this rule is like the rule of three is whatever you put out is going to come back to you three times. So if you put out good, it comes back to you three times. If you put out bad, it comes back to you three times. And the church of Satan was like, mm, no, that's not the way it works. I do me. I do what I want. I stay out of your business. You stay out of my business. And if you get in my business, I am your karma. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. So that's okay. the way it kind of boils down. It's like, so it's not this like big evil. It's more, and today the church of Satan is doing some very interesting things. I will say this is like, they are enormous advocates for women's rights, for women's body rights. And, you know, as our U.S. unfortunately turns more and more towards taking away women's bodily autonomy, the Church of Satan is actually filing court cases to support women's health clinics um, across the country. So, so having um, said all that, that sounds yeah. nothing like Richard Ramirez or what no. he was quote unquote practicing. It's not. Now, look, there were so there was also at the time where you know rock music was changing. Rock music began to change at this time because they were looking for the next edge. So there became, you know, metal started developing. And there are many musicians and rockers from that time that say the satanic panic made rock music. Oh, I because bet. it was it was kind of dying out. It was not really there was nothing that was being, you know, developed. And California rock was sort of this easygoing sort of right. you know, philosophical pothead. So they stuff. sort of rode the wave of Right. Hey, let's be controversial as as we can be and hail exactly. Satan. Exactly. Yeah. So 
Unfortunately, though, as we move into the 80s, um, there's another phenomenon that's happening that is sort of parallel to um, Richard Ramirez's uh, sort of assertions that he was practicing Satanism. He was doing his own thing, you know, with his use of pentagrams and, and some ritual animal sacrifice, because that's not what the Church of Satan was about at that time. But certainly there are people out there saying, I'm a Satanist. This is what I do. And, and, but unfortunately it became sort of the lightning rod for the worst that can be happening in the culture. Now, very briefly, I'm only going to touch on this briefly because a lot has already been said about this, but this was also coinciding at the same time where a lot of double income families were occurring. So it wasn't just a nuclear family where one person was going to work and supporting the family. This was both adults going and working full time. So what what happens to your kids? They're left so alone if, to their own devices, to influences. Well, if they're old enough, right? I mean, right. if they're old enough to the teenagers to get in trouble. But like oh. let's talk about it. Let's talk about a non-multi-generational family. Just like it's mom and dad. They both have jobs. They've got three kids. Oh, well, yeah. those kids go into daycare. preschool. They go into daycare. I was a daycare kid. Exactly. So this was the first time that that had actually really happened in, in history that we know of, of sort of these, well, I mean, there's some indications in ancient history of that, but like all day long in, in sort of this um, uh, preschool or kindergarten environment or daycare environment so that parents didn't know where their kids were. Right. And they knew that they were there and they assumed that they were safe. But then the satanic panic of the 80s and multiple cases and allegations of children being abused and it mutating into sort of these allegations of satanic rights, which has been investigated over and over and over again. And there's never, there has been one case, not even of a, there's one case of ritual abuse that is interfamily of a grandparent couple that were practicing some sort of bizarre religion and they were abusing their children sexually. Mm. But that was one case in all this. Wow. And, and over the years, I mean, there's still some people in prison um, as a result of these cases. Many lives were ruined, but no cases ever stuck. And the big one here in Southern California was the McMartin Preschool that many people still believe that they were guilty. None of the charges ever stuck. Um, the main witness came forward in 2005 and in an LA times article gave a breakdown by of why he said what he said. And when he tried to recant, he was basically completely shunned by his family, shunned by the police Terrible situation. Uh -huh. So you have to understand that this is also happening in the environment that Ramirez was working in as people right. were suddenly afraid that not only is this horrible person abusing and raping and assaulting and killing people, but he's leaving pentagrams. He's leaving his mark and he's saying that he is, you know, that he's a Satanist and that he is the devil. And right. he does have an intense stare and he does have like sort of a disheveled look that was even a little wild for that time. Do you think he really believed in it or do you think it was part of his shtick to be scary? I completely believe it was shtick. I don't think he yeah. believed a bit of it. 
I don't think that a lot of them did. I think that that was a way at the time. I mean, certainly there are people who go on their own personal journeys and trying to empower themselves. Self-improvement might involve your own particular spiritual path that takes you through many different religious explorations. But, you know, this is sort of and certainly I do know some people, I mean, there, there's a lot of psychology studies about people that are drawn to the occult and how it is in order to gain a sense of personal power and empowerment. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it becomes sort of therapeutic because it's you're engaging in regular rituals that you have learned or you've been taught that sort of do the same thing that you might have in therapy. But it's not about like these, you know, like sort of the sacrifice things that we, that we hear about. But another I wonder, thing, I, I wonder if he, if it was sort of the explanation he came up with, yes, it appears creepy. And it, when he's telling people, you know, his victims to swear to Satan or whatever, but I wonder if it was his explanation for why he was evil, like sort of this internal, I must be the son of Satan or whatever, because how else do I make sense of what I become? Oh, I think that's a great perspective. I I would not have thought that I I was actually sort of totally uh, assuming that it was total BS. And I think you're making a really good point that maybe this was an attempt on his part to reclaim some kind of power or reclaim some kind of identity. You know, a kid growing up in that horrible environment is going to have a whacked out sense of identity and sense of self. So maybe, yeah, I think that's a, a great hypothesis. Unfortunately, we're never really going to know, no, but I, I certainly think that has merit. So anyway, like, I'm uh, sorry, but, I cut you off before. No, no, no. It was, I mean, just basically boiling it down is it does not parallel with the church of Satan at all because they, you know, do not advocate for violence at all. Right. Um, but, you know, his interpretation and certainly what was going on in music, you know, to do. This is also like the era where we're moving into glam rock. So we see bands like Kiss and other death metal groups. I mean, I wouldn't even say Kiss was a death no, metal Kiss is not, not at all. <laughs> but, you know, they're suddenly everybody's trying to outdo themselves with yeah. like, you know, sort of what they consider to be devil and demonic um, right. imagery. You know, it's a show. It is. It is. And he, you know, he would draw pentagrams on the walls. He would draw pentagrams, usually would take lipstick from the home, uh, draw it on the bodies of his victims. Uh, Interestingly and funny, a funny, not funny situation. He actually got pulled over by a police officer actually a couple times and they didn't put two and two together, but he was pulled over on suspicion of driving a stolen car. He liked to drive stolen cars. And the cop jokingly said, hey, you're not that Night Stalker guy, are you? And he was like, oh, no, but they'll never catch that guy. And they're kind of bullshitting or whatever. And then the cop goes back to his car, you know, to run the plate or whatever. Richard Ramirez gets out of the stolen car. This officer was or he the officer was a motor officer. So Richard Ramirez gets out of the car and before he takes off into the night running away because he knows that he's going to get caught, he draws a pentagram in the dust on the hood of the car that he stole before he takes off into the night. And then he was gone. The cops didn't catch him. But well, there he is leaving his I, little, you know, Yeah, his, his, his calling card. I mean, that's that takes balls. That really takes balls. Yeah. Or who knows? Maybe he feels that he cast a spell that would protect him and allow him to escape that moment right there. 
Perhaps. I don't know. Perhaps. So here we are to highlight the victims of Richard Ramirez. And he ultimately was convicted of only 13 murders, uh, but he victimized a lot of people, a lot of people that were damaged for the rest of their lives, even if they lived through his attacks. So I'm going to go through a timeline here and I'm going to go in order, even though we didn't know about some of these until much later. But like I had said, his offending that we knew of in the summer of 85, actually started in 84. And the very first one was in April of 1984 up in San Francisco. And this was not linked to Richard Ramirez until 2009 when DNA evidence was finally matched to a nine-year-old murder victim, Mei Ling, who was found dead in a hotel basement near where he was living at the time. So they collected evidence, which, again, part of the forensics, thank God they collected all of this, even though they didn't even have the technology for it yet. You know, they were collecting and maintaining it and were able to uh, get a DNA match in 2009. Super interesting about this is there was also the DNA of a second person found at the crime scene who... From all accounts, it sounds like the police have identified, but the person was a minor at the time, and they've never named this person or brought charges. This is so fascinating to me because I think, oh, my God, was Richard now, you know, sort of grooming a young teen to come out and do things with him just as he had done with his brother-in-law? Yeah, that sounds like it. And led to this, I mean, the murder of a nine-year-old, so... I've never heard that before, never heard that before until we we did this research. So, you know, I think being that she was nine years old, there's not a lot of information on who she was. Her family wasn't talking to the press much. So I did not find a lot of personal information about mailing. Um, and then by then, you know, by the time we found out she was linked to him, it had, so much time had passed. But then in June of 1984, back down here in Los Angeles, an area called Glacelle Park, which is sort of northeast Los Angeles near Eagle Rock or Glendale, if you're familiar with that area, a 79-year-old woman named Jenny Vincow was really his first Los Angeles victim, and she was sexually assaulted and stabbed, and her throat had been slashed, and her adult son unfortunately found her at the scene and he was one of the first to testify at the trial. Now, they did not know that this was Richard Ramirez at the time. They thought that a 1985 murder was the first one, but then they realized it because they did lift a fingerprint from this scene and were later able to connect it. Wow. So Jenny Vincow, not a lot of, again, I think because she wasn't linked at first, not a lot of information on her. And then there's a lot of speculation, and I have not found confirmation of this, but that he was also involved in the stabbing death of basically a celebrity chef, uh, Kobayashi, up in Knob Hill in the San Francisco area in November of 1984. So as as late as maybe a couple of years ago, investigators are still trying to tie offenses um, to him. This one is just kind of, there's, it's a maybe still, but it definitely was, looked like him. 
1985, we're now in 85 proper, um, in February, there are some sisters up in the Bay Area, um, Christina and Mary Caldwell, living together ages 58 and 71, found dead in their home, and they were each stabbed dozens of times. Um, and they're a case that we didn't know about down here in Los Angeles either. But March ni- March 17th, 1985 is, is a very, very deadly day down here in Los Angeles at the hands of Richard Ramirez because he starts off in Rosemead, which is sort of East Los Angeles, San Gabriel Valley area. It's where my husband grew up. He lived probably, he said, within two miles of this, this crime. But Two women live together, 20-year-old Maria Hernandez and Dale Okazaki. She was 34. And Maria is coming home. She opens the garage, pulls her car in, and Richard Ramirez dips into the garage before she's able to shut the big garage door. And he confronts her in the garage. She lifts her hands up to sort of protect her face and he fires around at her which is deflected by the keys in her hand and she falls to the ground and pretends to be dead he steps over her goes into the home and ends up surprising and killing dale who's in the home Uh, maria does live Dale dies. Dale was born in Hawaii, and she was just two weeks shy of her 35th birthday when this happened. She had spent that evening actually at her parents' house watching a movie, and she was recently promoted at work, had a boyfriend. Life was going really well. She had um, attended Pasadena City College. She loved to take classes like cake decorating classes, and um, she had taken self-defense courses. Mm. Um, She was the kind of person, uh, a friend described her once in a story saying, you know, I was kind of at work just talking about how I had to uh, paint my house that weekend and how I was dreading it. And Dale showed up on her doorstep with a paintbrush in hand that weekend and was like, how can I help? That's you know, just, I mean, all of this is so tragic and it's, it's just the beginning. It, it is, it is. Um, so he, after he murders Dale within the hour, he is driving in Monterey park, very close. It's actually the city my brother grew up in. Um, and there's a woman driving her car, Veronica Yu. She's 30 years old. And she notices that this guy is like following her and is like on her ass driving crazy. So she slows down and lets him pass her. But then she starts following him. And eventually they stop. Um, There's not a ton of people around. There was one witness, but he ends up stopping. She's behind him at a red light. He gets out and tries to pull her by the shoulders through the window and eventually just shoots her in the face in the car. And she lived um, for a little while, but a witness did call for ambulance and she died on the way to the hospital. Uh, She was a 30-year-old student who lived with her parents locally and her family really didn't uh, comment on her life too much. They didn't like talking to the press. So that's all we really know about Veronica. I think that's an an interesting comment as we're moving through these cases and, and trying to, you know, 
give these victims of of name and a voice and a, and a face so that they're remembered as much as as Ramirez is. Mm-hmm. You know, Ramirez like eventually, I, I you know I think the best thing would be for the names of these these killers to just go away and let us focus on the the lives that were taken. Um, I do find it interesting. And I'm I'm making huge assumptions here about because you know you don't want to you don't want to judge um, make stereotypical comments or you know um, unfounded generalizations about people. But one of the things that we're seeing here is that a lot of the Asian families, you know, it's just it's too much attention. Yeah, and absolutely. they they don't they they don't want to comment. It's it's overwhelming for them as opposed to other people that get up and, you know, are ready, like, put me on the stand. I want him to fry. Right. You know, a lot of the the times that's just not really within the culture of, of many Asian families that, you know, they're, they, they grieve in their own way. And, you know, so it's not like they're not being cooperative with interviewers. It's just like, that's not, they don't consider that to be appropriate. And I think we have to respect that. Right. And a lot of these people that we're talking about are are immigrants. And, you know, you'll hear that with those that I did have do have more information on. Um, so there's there's a lot of things going on. There's strong cultural, traditional um, issues at hand. There could be language barriers here. There could be the fact that it's just horrific and I don't want to talk to anybody about it. Right. I mean, grieve in my own way. Um, but I I. I think, you know, it's it's an, an interesting side note. Um, the next, so that was March 17th. That was St. Patrick's Day. He killed two people and attempted on the third. And then 10 days later, March 27th, 1985 in Whittier, uh, he breaks into the home of Vincent Zarara and his wife, Maysine. So Vincent was 64. His wife was 44. Um he shoots and kills Vincent. A heartbreaking story here that they kept a shotgun under the bed for self-protection and Maysine goes to grab it, points it at Richard Ramirez, pulls the trigger, and hears a click. Oh. And their grandchildren had been over, so they had unloaded it like responsible people, and it had not been reloaded in that time. So he had shot and killed Vincent, but he stabbed Maysine and mutilated her terribly. I'm not even going to go into it. You can find it if you want to. Well, it's interesting. Like, you know, he doesn't also like he doesn't have a victimology. He doesn't have a particularly specific. He doesn't have a particularly specific mode or method of killing either. But what we do see here is this is an angry, angry person. Yeah. Like the, the number of stabbing, stabbing is such an intimate, you know, way to kill somebody. You're right there. You're not shooting from across the room, but he doesn't do that all the time. Sometimes he's shooting and he's mm-hmm. moving on. You know, it's almost like he's just trying to to up his, his score in a way, but it certainly seems in a case like that, poor Maysine, you know, when the gun clicked, that probably even like angered him even more like the, you know, he was oh, yeah. extra rageful to her because she was going to fight back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is the first scene where they found the Avia shoe print in the flower bed. Okay. And then shell casings are now starting to match other 
crime scenes. So they're starting to put it together. Um, so Vincent was an Italian immigrant. He, like I said, was an, um, oh, I maybe didn't mention this, but he was an attorney and his daughter described him as a walking party. Like he oh. was just, you know, so fun to be around. And Maysine was a lawyer and an accountant, and she was just described as a superwoman. Like, she raised a large family. She sang in the church choir. Just incredible people, it sounds like. And it, it, this really shook the area of Whittier. You know, this was a, a nice nice area of Whittier. Um, and it being a couple that's asleep in bed, middle of night, you're sort of seeing how, how the fear is elevating here. Yeah, absolutely. And then in May 14th, 1985 in Monterey Park. So we're back sort of um, just east adjacent to Los Angeles proper. Bill Doy, 66, is shot to death when he actually attempted to go to his own handgun to try to protect him and his wife um, when Richard Ramirez broke into their home in the middle of the night and his wife was disabled. And Bill is shot. He actually did manage to dial 911 before he died, likely saving his wife's life. But Mm. um, she was raped by Richard Ramirez. And this is also a pattern. There's a lot of, you know, maybe because some of them are elderly, but disabled individuals that Richard Ramirez is sexually assaulting. Bill had just retired. He and his wife had gotten a new car. They're planning this road trip throughout California so he could kind of take her around and see the sights. Uh, he was a Japanese American who had spent time in the Japanese internment camps during World War II when he lived in Arizona. And then he later joined the U.S. Army and was in a very elite unit of Japanese Americans. Um, and he had he was actually um, lived in Chicago and went to Northwestern University. Wow. Accomplished all that and already had been marginalized and suffered and then has this sort of horrible, tragic end. I mean, it's yeah. not sort of. It is a horrible, tragic end. Yeah, they they were just they were wild about their four year old grandson at the time, and um, he lost his grandfather that day. So May twenty ninth, we're just talking a couple weeks later in the city of Monrovia, um, very nice area, um, and these two elderly sisters lived together, and they lived sort of at the end of a road, not a lot of neighbors, and their friends and family didn't really like that too much, um, but they were very isolated, and Mabel, or Ma Bell, <laughs> their last name was Bell, Mabel's last name was Bell, but they called her Ma Bell. She was 83, and then her sister Florence, who went by Nettie, was 80, and she was disabled, and uh, Mabel had actually taken her in so she wouldn't be institutionalized to live with her. Um, But Mabel was bludgeoned to death by Richard Ramirez. And this was where the satanic pentagrams and scrawling started to happen on the walls. Um, Nettie was bludgeoned with a hammer and he also electrocuted her with exposed wires and raped her. They were not found for two days until their gardener got there and they were both still alive. Oh no. Well, they were both still alive. Um, Mabel eventually succumbed to her injuries 
Um, Nettie actually survived. Um, Mabel, had she had been widowed at a very early age, um, but she raised her two children. She worked as a secretary to provide for them. Like I said, she had taken in her sister later in life. Wow. Um, but she helped two grandkids through college. She loved to play bridge. She played several times a week. <laughs> um, and I love this tidbit about her. Every year, she donated to an organization to help keep the Statue of Liberty in good condition. Sweet. I think that is so sweet and personal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, who well, knows means, what like, it, we it, donate it, to, and that's just such a sweet, patriotic thing to donate to. Absolutely. It meant a lot to her, clearly. It meant a lot. Yes. Um, just a day later, on May 30th, in the city of Burbank, Richard Ramirez breaks into the home of Carol Kyle. She's 41 years old, and she's there with her 11-year-old son. Um, he rapes her oh. and ties up the son in a closet um, during this. She she basically, he got, I think the son was asleep, and he got up on the bed in front of the son and and pointed a gun in his face and she basically just got in between them, you know, ready to die for her son. And, um, he eventually just tied up the son, put him in a closet, sexually assaulted Carol, and then, um, tied them up together and left. So they lived, they both survived that attack. So there's also this not really rhyme or reason to who he's letting survive. Yeah. Except for maybe the most vulnerable. It um, feels very druggy. It feels very cocaine driven. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it does. So there's also a questionable one that has not been linked to him back up in the... the Bay Area was June 1985. It was a shooting death of Edward Wildgens in Cow Hollow. I don't have much information about that other than it's one that they're they're looking at. But also in June, June 27th, in Arcadia, back down here, sort of Pasadena area, um, Patty Higgins was murdered. Her She was found with her throat slashed, um, laying in mm. her bathroom. And she was really seemed to be an incredible woman. She was a special education teacher and counselor for some of really the most aggressive of the special education students. And the, the woman from the school district who hired her said, you know, here's this small slight woman. And I'm like, how is she going to handle this bunch? Because she really is looking for a position with some of the more aggressive kids. And she said she was just wonderful with them. Like they really, really responded to her. She did excellent work. Um, And she had grown up in Pennsylvania and attended college out there before moving to California. And then a couple of days later, um, June, July 2nd in Arcadia, again, uh, Mary Louise Cannon, 75, also a widowed grandmother, was uh, beaten unconscious with a lamp before she was stabbed to death. She was born on a farm in California. She married a horse trainer, and she kept the books for the, the family business, um, just Described as a lovely woman, she loved to needlepoint and tend to her roses. She had five granddaughters that were just her world. Um, but all of these, it, it, we say there's no, you know, consistent victimology, but there's definitely people that are extremely vulnerable that he's targeting, and he's taken out the men quick. 
and then oh that's you a know good what point. I, mean? I, I thank you because i was trying to i certainly get what you're talking about like he's finding people that are in helpless situations or mm-hmm. what he perceives but yeah i didn't wasn't realizing he was taking out the guys that quickly yeah i mean so there's got to be some surveillance and staking out of who he's going to victimize at least to some extent because you know, he's not breaking into a house with like frat guys or a couple of, you know, men who are roommates or something like that. Like these are elderly women living alone or he's taking out the men pretty quickly. Um, and then in July, July 5th, 1985 in Sierra Madre, which is somewhere I go every single week because I have family there. Lovely town. I want to live there someday. Um, he breaks into a home and immediately just blitz attacks Whitney Bennett, who's 16 at the time, and beats her with a tire iron. And he then goes to attempt to strangle her with a telephone cord, and the cord starts to spark. And he says he thought it was an intervention by Jesus, and it scared him off, and he left. Hmm. (laughs) So, but she survives. Whitney survives. Um, She said she came to. She had no idea what had happened. Um. And then, again, the shoe print is there. They're linking it all together. Fun fact, she grows up and marries the one of the main investigators' sons. <laughs> so I'm sure um, the shared trauma experience kept them close, and she got to know the family pretty well. It's kind of neat. Um, and then two days later, July 7th, Monterey Park, Joyce Lucille Nelson, 61. Um, she was beaten to death. Basically, Richard Ramirez just used his fists and stomped on her. Um, so much so that there was a shoe print that they were able to match oh. on her body. Uh, she worked on a production line for 32 years of her life at the same place. Um Played golf, loved teaching her grandkids how to play Scrabble. Again, you know, a woman whose entire family is just crushed after this. And then same day, also in Monterey Park, uh, Richard Ramirez attacks Sophie Dickman at her home. She was 63 years old. She um, was raped and sodomized, and she survives. This is one that he told her to swear to Satan before he left. Um, and I, I don't have a, there was just not a lot of information on Sophie, but she survived. That seems like a, a real attempt on his part to humiliate his victims. Oh, I you know, if he's so. going to, if he's going to let them live, he's going to make them say something that seems like the most salacious and harming to them as individuals. And, you know, that's right. what it was for him. Yeah, definitely. Maybe he was a believer. I mean, it's it's like, you know, as we develop know. and look at these things. Possibly. Um, and then July 20th in Glendale, we have uh, Richard breaking into the home of Max and Leela Needling. And Max was 68. Leela was 66. Both were assaulted with a machete that Richard Ramirez had bought that day. And then he also shot them to death. They had been married 47 years. They had three kids, 12 grandkids. He owned a service station and Layla, she worked for a security force at Robinson's department stores. I don't know if you remember Robinson's. They're a big department store chain. Um, what are those? 
It, it was a department store chain. Like no, but what, oh, are, what, what are, are those? <laughs> those are gone. I don't know. Amazon, right? Um, but he loved to barbecue, and he had. I just. I think this is so fun. He had this dream of one day buying a ghost town. Like that was his. <laughs> that's what he wanted to do with the you know his retirement money. Let me buy a ghost town and just own one. <laughs> um, and then she loved the Dodgers and the Lakers. And even people in her family said, even if she had chores to do, she would carry a little radio around with her so she could listen to the games while they were on. I love that. And Tommy Lasorda passed away today. For oh, that's right. That we're recording, talking about the Dodgers. They're lighting the, uh, the pylons down at LAX, Dodger Blue. Yay. Good, good. So he murders this couple early in the day in Glendale. And then again, same day he goes to Sun Valley, which is in the Valley. Um, and he breaks into a home and immediately shoots to death. The man, um, his name is Chainarong Covenant and he's 32 years old and his wife and eight year old son, I saw two different reports that just the wife was sexually assaulted, but I also saw a report saying that the eight-year-old son was sexually assaulted as well. Which would have been, which would be our, if that's accurate, would be our first uh, example of him, male child um, assault, sexual assault. Right. So Chainarong had immigrated from Thailand 10 years earlier. He was a parking attendant. He was described as quiet, but very friendly and loved to garden. And his daughter said that when they buried him, they buried him with a deck of cards because he loved to play blackjack. But Mm. she said it wasn't really blackjack that he loved. It was being around his friends and family doing this this card game and yeah, connecting with the people he loves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was very sweet. Um, and then August 6, 1985, we're coming to the end here, August, um, in Northridge, which is in the Valley, Richard Ramirez shot Christopher Peterson, 38 and his wife, Virginia, 27, um, in the head. They both survived. So that's uh, miraculous. Uh, August 8th, 1985 in Diamond Bar. That's a little further out here east now. Um, he breaks into a home and sh- again, while sleeping, shoots to death Elias Abueth, 35, and his wife, Sakina. He sexually assaults Sakina even when their three-year-old son walks in, um, ties him up continues to assault her. They survive, Sakina and her son. The three-year-old ends up walking to the neighbors and telling them daddy isn't feeling well Mm. to get the police to come. Um, Elias was an immigrant from Pakistan who worked for a computer company. They were, they, they kept to themselves, but they did do, you know, some social functions with neighbors and were just really described as, as wonderful people, a wonderful young family. Mm. And then August 17th, 1985, back up in San Francisco, um, Richard Ramirez shoots to death a man named Peter Pan, who used to tell new coworkers that he could fly. He would joke oh. around with them. 
Um, he was born in Taiwan. He worked for the railroad for a long time over there until communist China took over. And then he fled to Hong Kong and then started his own import-export business and eventually came to um, America and then California. And he also loved to garden. A friend of his said that basically it was his meditation and that he was a pacifist. He hated violence. Um, he was 66. He was shot. And his wife, Barbara, who was 62, was also beat and sexually assaulted. She survived. Um, and this is one of the scenes where Richard Ramirez used her lipstick to draw pentagrams on the wall. And then he also wrote Jack the Knife. Um, and then again, fingerprints and shoe prints matched him to crimes in Los Angeles. So this is all like, oh my God, it's coming together. We're getting closer. We're now matching these crime scenes in the Bay Area. It's super on the down low because I don't want to scare this guy away. And the mayor of San Francisco back then, who is who was Diane Feinstein, she ends up going on TV, divulging the information about the Avia shoe prints. And what does Richard Ramirez do? He takes those and he throws them off the Golden Gate Bridge immediately because he sees it on the news. And the investigators were livid. Yeah, that was not really well thought out at all. She really um, got reamed for that. That was her legacy for a little bit here in California. Um, So he heads back to Los Angeles area. He then goes south, about 50 miles south of L.A. to Mission Viejo. And on August 24th, 1985, he breaks into the apartment of Bill Carnes, 29, and his fiance Inez Erickson, who is 27. So he shoots Bill in the head, sexually assaults Inez, and again demands she swear her love for Satan, and then he ties her up and leaves. She struggles loose and is able to see his car driving away. So she gets a vehicle description um, and she's able to um, relay that to the police and call 911. And her, well, I have her, her fiance survived three gunshot wounds to the head. Um, So, but I think she survived the gunshots because um, Bill passed away and he was, Bill was a young electrical engineer. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. No, I take that back. He was paralyzed by Ramirez's bullets. So they both survived. They both sustained gunshots to the head and survived. Um, But he was disabled after that. This is what a trail of wreckage. I mean, I know we're coming to the end, but like this is just an unbelievable trail of wreckage and a season of fear that this guy has created in a crazy small period of time, as opposed to so many other cases that we talk about where people are just disappearing and then the connection is found way later. Right. Right. So, so like I said, when we were talking about forensics, this all sort of comes together with um, matching the foot, the footprints, matching the shoe prints, fingerprints, getting some information from an informant about possibly his name, um, narrowing it down, and then finally IDing him. Once they have his ID confirmed, they find they ha- they do have old booking photos, so they're like, we have to release this to the public. Like everybody is needs to be able to know who this guy is. Well, when he's ID'd, he actually goes to Arizona to try and visit his brother. 
He's not able to connect with his brother. He returns to Los Angeles and he's at a little market in East Los Angeles and he's basically on the front of every newspaper and there's a little there's a group of little old Mexican women that start pointing at him and saying El Matador El Matador the killer the killer. Wow. And he takes off running. He runs a couple of miles across the 5 freeway gets into a another neighborhood predominantly Mexican as well and is trying to find a car to take off with and he tries to carjack this pregnant woman and her husband is like right there and he and all of the men from the neighborhood basically beat the shit out of Richard Ramirez people say that you know had the police not got there they would have killed him but Gil Carrillo, the investigator, says, no, this, this was a good group of men. They they held him down until we got there. So I, I don't know if they had put two and two together that this was the killer, but he was trying to carjack this guy's wife. <laughs> so they were going to hold him down until the cops got there. And that's basically how it happened. You know, a, a, a well, bunch of and, people from a neighborhood they, caught the Night Stalker. Right. And thank God that they did hold him down. Because there was so much information that came out through the process of the investigation and the trial that would have, you know, could have potentially not connected many of these crimes. Sure. Oh, God, If he had yeah. just died, you know, so those guys and really made the right decision. Those guys actually got a huge chunk of the reward money. So oh, good. that's, good. I'm, I'm so happy about that. But, um, 24 years after his sentence, Richard Ramirez was on death row for 23 years, and he died in 2013 from B-cell lymphoma, blood cancer, basically. But, um, you know, I a lot of this has, has sort of transferred over into the, the couple of depictions here from Hollywood that... Uh, I'm just going to briefly touch on, I'm not going to, to harp on this at all, but he, the, the character of Richard Ramirez was featured in American Horror Story twice. So during season five of Hotel, which is basically supposed to be the Cecil Hotel, um, he attends the Devil's Night Soiree that happens once a year. And basically there's all these serial killers there, but the whole opening scene is them the the owners of the hotel setting up a couple for him to attack. And it's interesting because in that opening scene, he's strangling the woman with a phone cord and it sparks and she gets up and runs. So they're taking these little bits and pieces like American Horror Story does, you know, from, from real cases and um, is putting those in there. But then he was also a huge part of American Horror Story 1984. I mean, basically throughout the entire season, which yeah. takes place in the eighties, um, even has the scene of him getting captured in East Los Angeles, which is pretty great to kind of see a depiction of that. And I think they brought him back. Cause I know the sort of the mythology in American horror story is that you may be locked in place in the place where you died, but on Halloween night, you can travel anywhere. Right. So don't they have some kind of like regular banquet at the sea hotel yeah it's called the... devil's night and that's okay. that's what i was talking about where they have like eileen warnos is there and oh, right, john wayne right. gacy and Dahmer and um the zodiac <laughs> he has his hood on because we don't know who he is right, so, right. um but do you want to hear what his uh parting words were after he got sentenced to death when he was leaving the courtroom 
What? He says, hey, big deal. Death always comes with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. Right? <laughs> like, why that? You know, you think it would be just like a Hail Satan or something, but. Yeah. I mean, once again, just sort of like, I think I just I have the overwhelming feeling that so much of this was not. It was a weird combination of stalking, not stalking. What are we calling um, surveilling potential victims and yet a lot of impulse stuff and i just yeah. like there just feels like speedy cokey methy type impulses like plan 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 and then then like you know two ins two three incidents in a day at different parts it doesn't make any sense right like unless who you're has going the energy and, for that <laughs> right unless how do you get the yeah you're coked up your or mind. something yeah yeah, I don't know. And then there's, you know, it's not like that just happened once. There's several of those where, and, you know, he's, there's somewhere he's just, you know, driving from here to there, but there's times when he's driving a good amount of time to get yeah. to another location in the same day. So be interesting if there was any way to overlay his travel plans during those times when he was doing days of multiple murders and if there was any knowledge of what you know, uh, drug sales were in what area? Like, was he driving through areas? Was he, you know, was he burglaring or robbing any of his victims enough to get money to support the drug habits or something? It just feels like there's yeah. gotta be a connection there. Well, and he, he would take valuables from the home or he would, um, you know, tell some of the women before, after he assaulted them, like, show me where your valuables are. So he was okay. also, I mean, he was legit like burglarizing, um, in terms of theft. Um, but I don't know, but I'm, I'm interested. I want to know what everyone thinks about the docuseries. Oh, yeah. I'm interested to see it. I think it's, it's going to be really well done. I think from the trailer, I can tell they've really talked to the right people. You know, some of the, you'll just get a real feel for it. And they have this really slow, creepy version of the song cruel summer kind of playing the background of the trailer, wow. which is pretty fitting. But well, I want to I want to thank you for doing something because this is a little I mean, this is a longer episode for us. Um, but I really like that you went out of your way to focus on these wonderful people whose lives were cut short, you know, wonderful people who gave to their community or cared for each other as family members and just how quickly their lives were taken away from them by violence. And, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm making a tenuous connection in what's going on in the world today, but I think all of us would benefit from, from cherishing the people that we love, looking in on the people that we love, making sure that we care for people and we don't, and we do our best not to create environments where violence like this has a, a chance to fester in a crucible the way it did for Ramirez. That's beautiful. That's a great way to to end this. I I would encourage everybody to please try and join us on Get Vocal. I think it's going to be just a it, it's going to be platforming from where we're at today to really hear from Los Angelinos who lived through this, and yeah. I'm excited to hear their stories and their perspectives and how everyone just felt like they were very close to it. So please join us on uh, Saturday, the 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. Oh, can't wait. 
All right. Happy 2021, Dr. Scott. Happy 2021. I am cautiously hopeful. I am hoping everyone is taking care of themselves, and I'm going to do my best to um, keep making this great country great. <laughs> I mean, I don't, like, I don't want to, <laughs> that's not a, that's a terrible, it's been unfortunately maligned and it's been stolen, but um, we have some great stuff going on here. Let's keep it going that way. Let's do it. Yeah. We hope to see everybody or we hope you come back to hear us next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Take care. Good night, folks. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. Check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash LA Not So Podcast. Until next time, folks. 